And it is pronounced ECs just because the I in Spanish is E. So you kind of did mix a little bit of your uh, Latinx roots in the name. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was just named after French wine, so nothing <laughs> too fancy. <laughs> that is fancy. <laughs> um, okay, so we can go ahead and get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Bundle of Hers. Today, we have Harjeet and Margot in the virtual remote studio. Still, you know, COVID raining on our parade always. But today, we have a special guest, Isis, who is a nurse at Primary Children's who has saved my butt so many times as an intern. And um, today's topic is going to be about weight bias and fat phobia in medicine. I know we've talked about this in other seasons, but it continues to be a really prevalent thing for me and that I've noticed now, especially as a resident. And I noticed that ECs has been posting stuff on Instagram and we kind of started talking about it. So I wanted to have this conversation with Harjeet and her, but ECs, would you like to introduce yourself briefly to our listeners and welcome? Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Isis. I am super excited to be here. It's my very first time doing anything like this. So I'm a little nervous, but I'm also really excited to just kind of, you know, get this conversation going and hopefully change people's minds. So yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And like I mentioned earlier, weight bias and fat phobia in medicine has, it's such a big topic. We could probably do a whole podcast on it, but I wanted to focus on specifically BMI as a measure of health, uh, how it's not valid for this conversation. Um, and then our own personal experiences, it'll be a two-part series. So make sure you tune in for the second part, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about the brief history of BMI and how it really isn't valid based on the way that it was created for like it's not valid in today's population or for what we use it for. And then like always on Bundle of Hers, we're going to share our own stories regarding weight bias and fat phobia in medicine, um, both in our own personal experiences and as providers. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think, like you said, we've talked about this before, but it's always prevalent and always relevant and something that we really should be uh, critical about. Basically, I got this brief history from a very nicely summarized article called The Bizarre and Racist History of the BMI, which is written by someone who goes by Your Fat Friend. And they link lots of different actually like quote unquote, evidence-based articles that we would usually look at in medicine throughout this article. So I think it's a really nice article. Um, I'm going to briefly go through it, but make sure you check it out. So starting in the mid-1800s, a person named Adolphe Quetelle was a sociologist who was trying to identify the characteristics of what the quote-unquote average man was. And this was from his white Eurocentric perspective, of course. Um, so among other statistical and pseudoscientific theories that he developed, he came to believe that the mean of a population was its ideal. And thus, after studying a bunch of white French and Scottish People who were assigned male at birth or XY chromosomes, Quetelet developed an index, which he called Quetelet's index, which is what we now know as the BMI. 
So historically, weight, like higher weight and fatness used to be associated with health and wealth. It was it meant that you had access to food and you were secure. Um, however, around the time of World War II, people started associating weight with heart disease and life insurance companies actually started collecting data on height and weight um, among other metrics, as a way to um, sort of determine how much to charge policyholders. So in and of it, we already know that like Quetile had a very condensed population of just white men from two countries. And then the second set of people is people who could afford life insurance policies, right? And then the, the other part was they were self-reporting their heights and weights. So insurance companies were trying to figure out how to utilize this information to create a best measure of health and ultimately a predictor of their bottom line, right? This just reminds me of a lot of things like someone just decides to do something and everyone's like, oh, this sounds like a good thing to go along with. <laughs> exactly. It's it's like totally arbitrary. It's someone gets an idea or a theory and then they run with it. Right. And sometimes it works and sometimes it can be harmful, like we'll see here. So in the 70s, another person named Ansel Keys did a study of about 7,500 men from five different countries, which were mostly white, and concluded that Quidale's index, which he then called the BMI, was the most effective method of any of the ones that the life insurance companies were using to predict weight with health. So that was sort of the first time that BMI was linked to health. And then in 1985, the National Institute of Health adopted the BMI into the definition of obesity and overweight, uh, making it a, like a fully a public policy and fully integrated into healthcare. And then in 1998, the NIH lowered the threshold for overweight and obese. So, and that sort of led the way into the rhetoric for the quote unquote obesity epidemic and this very reductionist idea that obesity is linked, uh, or sorry, that BMI is linked to health. So, basically, what it s sums up from this story is that um, there's so many flaws in the way that BMI came to exist for us, right? It, first of all, it was never meant to be a measure of health. Second of all, it was only ever validated in white male populations. So how could we use it as a tool for all populations, right? Whether you're black, brown, woman, or female or not, you know, and actually more current research suggests that there are different types of obesity. One from Mass General Hospital suggests that there's like 59 different types and some of them are more associated with certain things than others. And so this idea that BMI can just solely represent present one thing is really flawed. Also, there's research to show that the BMI overestimates fatness in Black people and underestimates it in Asian populations. And so you can really over or under diagnose based on the BMI. And so the BMI is not a great tool. And the fact that we're still using it sort of blows my mind after doing this research. <laughs> So us having gone through nursing school and medical school, I think we really learned to associate BMI with health as one of the vital signs almost. And that made me start to think about, well, what actually is health? And so I wanted to open that question to you guys. What does health mean to you? Um, I really enjoy that you said that you brought up how weight is a vital sign because I was just having this conversation with someone the other day and you know I work in a pediatric hospital so 
we always make sure that we get a weight just for worst case scenarios. We want to know like specific drugs that we would use and stuff like that. But as an adult, when I go see my doctor and every single time they want my weight and I just realized not that long ago that why is weight a vital sign? And I just keep asking myself that. And I actually, the last time I went in, I'm like, nope, I refuse to get weighted. (laughs) And it was a little empowering and kind of weird. But, you know, I feel like in school, in any kind of medical related school, you're going to learn that health is an absence of illness, right? Being overweight or having weight issues does not always define your health. Exactly. And when you think of the other vital signs like heart rate or blood pressure, those are things that, I mean, even like a slightly elevated blood pressure isn't necessarily a sign of poor health. It could be like white coat syndrome, right? Like in that moment, you're really anxious, but it's not a long-term measure of your health. But the way I feel like that we're taught to think about those is to like look at those objective measures and take them on a more longitudinal view sometimes, right? And when we're so rushed and doing things and we have so many patients, we look at these numbers and then we just attach these associations and these assumptions. When in reality, like you're saying, whether you're overweight or underweight, that one visit doesn't necessarily mean you're unhealthy. And I like what you said is health is the absence of illness. And when I was thinking more about what is health, initially my mind was like, like going to numbers and these uh, these like objective values and i think that's how we're taught to think about it but if i think about it more in an abstract level i i think and when i feel healthy is when i feel probably good biologically psychologically and socially when those three things are sort of in harmony even if one is off or the other, I feel healthy or I feel good. And so I think when we only think about vitals, you know, these numbers as vital signs and objective data, we are really not looking at people holistically and health holistically. And then I think that in turn causes a lot of harm for patients because like you said, I get so much anxiety about going to the my physical and getting weighed and having the doctor like chide me because my BMI is not normal either. And it's like, <laughs> but I'm like, but I feel healthy. <laughs> so um, I think we are really doing our patients a lot of injustice. And then again, and then there's this whole point that like BMI doesn't apply to everybody. And when we are attaching this idea of health to a standard that isn't even validated for you, that feels like really bad. And we're doing a lot of harm there. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree with that. And even for me, I think the way both of you defined health is basically how I see health. Health is, you know, a state of being where you are content and your body's content. And like you said, Margot, biologically, psychologically, and socially. And having a measure of what that is, is it's kind of limiting us as people too. Because mm-hmm. you can't define health with one thing. And that's unfair. And I think that limits the uniqueness of every single human being. And I think the issue with BMI is it's tied to weight and then weight is tied to body image and then body image is tied to so many like from the government to the media to education. It's literally seeped in everything. And I think 
it's so interesting that one person thought of this thing called the BMI. And I think when I think of BMI growing up, I used to be like, oh, weight is something like I know it's a number. BMI is more of like a mathematical equation. Like there's so much academia tied to the word BMI. Yeah. Which is also messed up because it's like, is this really like academic? Because it's not changing. It's not growing. It's the same freaking thing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's frustrating when you do look through and to know that there is evidence out there like peer-reviewed evidence that says that the BMI is not valid but yet we're still continuing to use it probably because that's what we've always done (laughs) and not recognizing I think a lot of people don't recognize the harm and exactly what you were saying Harjeet is by defining someone by this number there's so many downstream effects that can come into your own conscious and your own the way you think about yourself and value yourself. And the other part of this that we'll get into more in the second half is how much our society, like this is where the fat phobia comes in. And and that really to me means that we are afraid of gaining weight. But why? Because weight has been, I don't want to say criminalized what's it called villainized no it's been pathologized yes that's the issue the issue is it's been pathologized we're saying that being over a certain weight you have an illness but it's like no you don't have an illness sorry I'm talking so passionately about this because that's the point the point is we pathologize fat people and I say the word fat people not in any derogatory way but that's just some individual's don't mind that word because it's them reclaiming that word, right? And like it's pathologizing something that shouldn't be. That's the issue. Yeah, like uh, with the word fat, it, there's this whole movement of body liberation and fat liberation where we are taking the word fat back. And that means different things to different people. And if you choose to identify that way or not. But I think uh, something common is like if someone says, oh, I'm so fat, and then your friends are like, no, 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 no. Like that is the embodiment of fat phobia, right? Is like we're so afraid to even be called fat when we're trying to like navigate our own feelings about our body because it is so strongly tied to this idea that fat is pathologized. And it comes back to the fact that body weights amongst different populations and different races has not been studied. And so like what is healthy and normal in a certain population or race is completely different than what would be for the white standard that the BMI was made for. And also this idea that there's only one ideal weight for all people everywhere is just like BS. That you wouldn't consider like genetics and stuff, right? Right. And um, it's funny because I have a 10-year-old. And so her dad is half Tongan, half white. And I'm full Hispanic. And she takes on his genes. Like she is super tall. You know, she's not heavier set, but she's pretty built. And she's athletic. Like she does karate three times a week. So she has a lot of muscle. And I took her into the pediatrician and they were like, oh, well, we should talk about her BMI. And I completely lost it. I was like, nope, we are not doing that. Like BMI doesn't take into consideration like muscle mass, bone density, you know, her genetics. And why are we still talking about it? Why are you going to allow this one portion of who we are to define us. 
Right. And especially when it's a doctor's office. And I think a lot of people take that to heart. And that's where you can get the body image issues is like, oh, they think something's wrong with me when like you're saying she's completely healthy and active and she is just who she is. And there is nothing wrong with her. And yet she can so easily be made to feel like the opposite. Also, Isis, I love this example that you gave for several reasons. And I think the first thing is that there's this culture that we go to the doctor's office and it's supposed to be a protective space. It's supposed to be a space where we're vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, we're easily influenced, right? You know, that should be a sacred place, but it's not. And also, I just want to, again, applaud you for advocating and for yourself and your daughter and saying, no, we don't need to talk about this. Because the truth is, even though me as someone who now has the title of a doctor, I don't know everything, right? And I am here to provide care for you in a collaborative way. And so I really want to just applaud you for doing what you did and standing up for what you felt was right. Thank you. I mean, a lot. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're so amazing. (laughs) Uh, And I think that we'll end part one here and then and continue with our own experiences with weight bias and fat phobia and sort of navigating that through our childhood and up to now um, in part two. So thank you for tuning in to part one of Bundle of Hers. You can always follow us at Bundle of Hers on Instagram and make sure you tune in for part two. Here's a sneak peek of the next episode. Just recently, maybe like two years ago, I jumped on this self-love journey and it has helped me grow significantly. But I think if I sit down and think about it, I think it all started back in sixth grade. We had some coats donated to our school. I remember being so excited to get a coat and not being able to get one because I couldn't find one to fit me. I feel like as healthcare providers, people come to us when they're most vulnerable. We have the power to educate people and guide them towards happiness because I always associate healthiness and happiness together.